Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite shows behind the paywall. I am Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me, celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, Patch. How you doing today? I'm good. Listen to me. My voice is getting a little bit better. But we are in season one of Halt and Catch Fire. Thanks for listening. As you know, you've downloaded the episode. You know what we're talking about. We're in episode three entitled High Plains Hardware. And I believe yeah. you mentioned at the tail end of the last episode that this felt like a reference to a movie called High Plains Drifter. Confession, I have not seen that. So oh. at some point in our discussion, if there is anything that kind of connects the two that you remember, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but feel free to kind of clue me into that. Yeah, it's a Clint Eastwood film from 1973. It's good. I mean, it's it's not like groundbreaking or anything. It's just a very standard Clint Eastwood Western, you know, just okay. typical. You know, it's not like Unforgiven where it kind of turned the genre yeah. on, you know, on its head. Is that how you say it? On its cowboy hat, maybe. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this was when Clint was doing just a lot of just action genre yeah. pictures. Okay. This was a Warner Brothers mid-budget American mm-hmm. film. It was around the same time that he started doing Dirty Harry. You know, that obviously Dirty is Harry. a, yeah. those are, he's a San Francisco cop in those. But, you know, he was just, he was, this is before he became like an Oscar winning director, serious filmmaker. Yeah. He was just doing the, yeah. his, his genre, uh, tough guy roles. And, and it's gotcha. entertaining for that. You know, there's nothing wrong with okay. that. It, it's, it's certainly worth a, a watch if you ever are looking for a little escapism. But yeah, I wasn't quite sure the why they chose to, to title the episode this until the very end, and we'll get into that. I don't know if you caught the, the reference. It's almost like the second to last shot of the episode, <laughs> I think. Okay. <laughs> Good deal. I'm ready for that. I'm ready for you to kind of give me the big reveal. You know, this is, again, your first time going through this series. So I have to ask, as I will do every episode for this series, what did you think? It's a really good episode. For me, this is an example of an episode where everything starts to go kind of wrong for (laughs) the central characters. They're kind of, you know, it's like the Empire Strikes Back, where they're all put in a predicament where... They're not quite sure what to do or how to get out of it. Of course, th- this may continue into the next episode. I'm not sure, but that's part of the arc of the characters. They have to overcome these these challenges that are being presented in this episode. So I I really enjoyed it, and and I just want to add this is a unique episode in that it was directed by Karen Kusama, who I don't know if you're familiar with who she is, but she directed. Uh, a number of films such as Girl Fight, Ian Flux, hmm. Jennifer's Body, uh, The Invitation, and uh, most recently she did a film called Destroyer, st- starring Nicole Kidman. This was obviously okay. after this show um, <laughs> aired, or yeah, yeah, was released, and it was written by Jason. I think it's Cahill, and he Cahill, is yeah. a yeah. He wrote for The Sopranos and Fringe, which is a, which is another show I yeah. used to love on Fox when it was. On oh, there. I loved Fringe. So, 
Yeah. So it's just interesting. Uh, they've got some some big guns working on uh, on this episode. Well, and it shows. Uh, this was definitely another solid entry for this series. And while I think the second episode clearly focused on character development and really getting us familiar with the characters as they connect with each other, this episode was, I guess, the mythology or about the stuff where we're now moving the actual plot along for how everybody at Cardiff Electric, or at least the computer division, is going to be attempting to put a ding in the universe as Joe plagiarizes from Steve Jobs. And we've agreed that we're both okay with that because he has its own great quotes that stick with us as well. So if you can at least kind of springboard off of one quote from a famous like eccentric to create your own, fantastic, right? We're going to do with that. Yeah. So let's get into it. We start with that cold open. I had one thought at the very beginning of this, dying birds make me sad. And... (laughs) I will say that the production quality here is great because I am assuming they didn't actually get a dying bird to be part of this scene. It looked real. It looked like a bird that had kind of broken something or was not uh, necessarily in the best of shape. Yeah, I didn't check the credits to see if uh, if any animals were harmed in the making of this episode, but I I would imagine not. I think any major production these days can't do that. There's laws in place, regulations, so... Yeah, I'm sure it's some film trickery at work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it did work. It worked for me. Made me sad. Brian's there offering a ride. I love that he goes, let go and let God, right? (laughs) It's like he's just there for moral support. I will say this as sort of a kind of a precursor to his character. I didn't think he had such a prominent role after the last episode. I thought he was there for kind of humor, offering the amazing donuts line which is fantastic i didn't realize until this episode that he had more prominence in the episode and i was surprised because obviously it's been a while since i've seen it and right i i find his little arc somewhat intriguing as it relates to how gordon is uh kind of growing up in this episode and i just have to say that is it just me or does he feel like he could be josh lucas's younger brother he just really reminds (laughs) me yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, totally. I know it's not him, but <laughs> it's so. We can call it that. He'll be yeah. Josh Lucas. He ha- uh, no, he has the know. kind of same eyes and and mm-hmm. and also the accent and just his his delivery, this kind of slow cadence. I don't know. It's just something about him really just reminded me of him. So yeah, if he does voiceovers for Lowe's, then we can probably assume there that he's Josh Lucas's <laughs> brother. At that point. I didn't look up to see who he was. I, I should have. I should have. Cause maybe maybe it is. Maybe it's his kid brother. No, I, 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 I highly doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, it's Will Greenberg is his okay. name. So also we've got Cameron sleeping in the office, kind of wondering when she's going to get paid because she has no yeah. place to live. You're one of the most important people on this team, and yet you do not have a place to shower and have proper dental hygiene. You have to resort to the company bathroom. So hoping you get paid at some point, which obviously she it's does. A, we'll get into and that. it's a funny shot, too, when the janitor kind of rolls into frame and he kind of looks over <laughs> at her. You can tell, you know, he's, his, his expression is kind of like, get your ass up. You know, it's like he's just like, what are you doing here? You know, he's, it's an interesting scene. This was a weird series of cuts, Adam, where you yeah. have her and then there's a cut to Joe jamming shirtless to like 80 synth, I guess, in the early morning. I think morning. he's pantsless too. 
<laughs> I don't think he has. I, I didn't want to think about on. that. Thanks for yeah. bringing that up. I'm just going to uh, assume he was shirtless. Yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't notice any. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it it goes from that to a hard cut of Gordon <laughs> letting people go. I, know. I, I felt awkward. Like I wasn't even the one doing it, and I was like, "Wait, what's going on here?" <laughs> and he he says a line having to do with snowflakes. He says. It's like when you get an early snow and it freezes your orange grove. And then the farmer has to find another way to deliver the juice. You know, even if every snowflake is totally unique, like you. Like he's trying to make light of the fact that every person in this office that I'm canning really is special. But sometimes, wow, he's, Gordon. Yeah, he's clearly not trained or good at this uh, at firing people <laughs> yeah and it, honestly it, most people aren't it, it takes a, a special type of person and training uh, to let somebody go in a kind of humane way <laughs> it's yeah a challenge and we find out later in a conversation that he had to let 46 people go Ugh. really like who does that gordon doesn't he can't and <laughs> And this is all because of the, of him and and Joe. It's like he's got to yeah. feel some guilt, even though he's getting this dream project to to work on. If he hadn't done what he did with Joe, those people would still be employed. So that's got to be way absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They have quite literally cost the company thousands, thousands, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars. And yeah. so the only way to rectify that is to get rid of smart people who may be able to help, but they can't afford to have on the project. And so that gets us to the the opening credits. And now we're back in what I think feels like, at first glance, a ready room for a police station, the way that <laughs> Joe has like the whole room set up. You've yeah. got all these kind of guys looking like detectives getting ready for their beat assignments. But he's describing the age that they're in of microcomputers. And it's so cool, Adam, how he uses video game consoles to describe what we're talking about. I think he mentions Atari, Coleco, and maybe one other. And somebody points out video games. He's like microcomputers. He sees it differently. He sees these consoles, these compact consoles as being very powerful. And then he contrasts that with the response of the big brands like IBM and Tandy and whoever. I'm probably yeah. getting those names wrong. But he he has examples of those. And how did the PC business respond? With a cassette deck, a sewing machine, and a carburetor. And that gets them to sort of understand what he's trying to do. Did you catch who the guy in the glasses was who says video games? I didn't. It is none other than Mr. Clark from Stranger Things. What? Yes. What? You're going to have to go watch it all over again. I'm going to go watch it. I'm going to go watch <laughs> that scene. His uh, actor's name is Randy, Randy Havens. And I think the character's name is Stan. I don't know if they Stan. mentioned that, but okay. I had to look it up. Yeah. So that's him. He's yes. a few years younger than he was in Stranger Things because this aired before oh. Stranger Things. But wow. it's, it's him, Mr. Clark. It is. It is Mr. Clark. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Oh. One of our favorite characters from yes. Stranger Things. Yes, just as nerdy. It's, it's awesome. very, it's very for... possible that the Duffers saw him in this and 
cast him as a result of this role because it would have been the right timing if you think about it, it yeah you know they would have been starting to cast stranger things in 2014 20 mm-hmm. you know around there and this would have been just out a year before yeah so yeah this could be the role that got him the role in stranger things that is so cool yeah add it to the number of questions that we'll eventually ask the duffers when we get them on our show <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and so as joe is kind of selling his idea he says by the end of this year cardiff electric will release to the market a truly portable computer with two disk drives integrated screen and keyboard weighing no more than 15 pounds and he basically gets laughed out of the room essentially they're all complaining they actually bring up the fact that you know who's good at screens that guy you fired maybe you can go out and, (laughs) and get him in the parking lot before he leaves it's legitimate resistance. Oh, yeah. I would be resistant to that. I mean, you've got this guy coming in saying, let's do the impossible with less people than we had, and let's do it with people who are not qualified or without the people who were qualified to do this. And so we're left with kind of a, okay, what's going to happen here? I do like Joe's analogy, though, when he holds up the briefcase, because he says, this is this is our new computer, and it has to fit into this shape. And I think that's pretty cool. If you think about, at the time, what a computer was it's a tall order but also i think anybody who was a part of a project like that would be like if we could do this we'll change the world so it's amazing to to even have the idea that this could be possible to make Mm -hmm. such a leap forward two things i want to note here one it has a handle so there you go you know gordon clark was sarcastically excited about that (laughs) last episode and two I think this approach of the potential laptop computer or the portable computer is the niche that this show is going to find success. Because as we talked about in IO or the pilot episode, the questions that we have are, how do you take a Cardiff Electric and tell their story in a world that exists with IBM, Tandy, or Apple and not feel redundant, not feel derivative? Well, at the time you're not probably thinking about laptop computers or portability. I mean, if you think about 1984, we're talking about smaller, the PC, the home PC. Right. Apple was coming out with something, you know, the whole think different. I believe that was a little later, but yeah, but it lived in that, in the early days of being different. Exactly. Than the IBM PC. Cardiff electric now has this concept of what could become the laptop computer I don't know when the first laptop computer came out, but if it was like the late 80s, early 90s, then clearly Cardiff Electric at this it's, point yeah, they're way has a leg up. Yeah. They are. And that fascinates me. I think that's a great approach, a great concept to say, okay, we know what technology exists in the future. What can we latch on to? I'm speaking as a creative team. What can right. we latch on to that this little company that we've created and this group of individuals can latch onto in order to challenge them, but also feel like they're part of what is realistic. I mean, it's not like they're building translucent computers that make uh, bacon in the morning. I mean, those never (laughs) existed. That would be amazing if they did. But they're not creating stuff that isn't realistic to a modern audience. And I think this idea of a laptop computer fits really well because it's so far removed from where they actually where all the other the yeah, where all the other companies were at that time, because like you said, at that point in history, everything was moving from big computers that were in offices to home computers that would sit on a desk. But no one was thinking, oh, we need to move around with our computer. No, that wasn't even 
on anyone's radar at that point in time. I'm sure there were some creative individuals who and science fiction writers that were imagining that that would be possible one day. But the goal really was to make computers accessible to everyday and affordable for everyday people. That was really right. the, the sort of the thing that the standard computer manufacturers were doing at that time. And so, yeah, right. this is it's a leap forward in, in a yeah. lot of ways. It does make me wonder if the two times fast, half the price concept was thrown out in favor of this. It, it feels like um, it would have to be because this is mm -hmm. going to be <laughs> twice as expensive, most likely, and <laughs> twice as long to make <laughs> it feels like i don't he doesn't say yeah. that or anything yeah i think he's realizing that maybe his first approach isn't enough like they mm -hmm. need to kind of go big or go home right or in this case go small <laughs> or go home <laughs> otherwise they're not going to be able to compete with the powerhouse of you know ibm or apple or any of the other big names of that era meanwhile we get revisited with Cam in Cube City and then in the basement she is basically pilfering what's left that the folks who are fired are yeah. uh she's getting all that stuff and I think one of them even says you could have at least waited until we were out of the building and she's like what she's listening to her headphones yeah. <laughs> and then uh we cut to her next she's down in the basement and she's struggling with the code I, I think it's a great way to end the scene where she just types after all that code she erases it and just types not good enough <laughs> right <laughs> This is a running theme in this episode that eventually I think finds some resolution, but I thought it's just a continuation of her going, okay, what am I doing? I've yeah. got to do this initially on my own, but, uh, but I love seeing her struggle with this. She wants it to be original. I think she just wants it to be not perfect, but completely unique. She's done with like grabbing the binder. She's not doing that. It's not ethical. It's about pride. Right, right. And I think it's the sort of programming equivalent to writer's block. It's not coming to her. Like she's trying, but she can't get what she wants to kind of manifest itself. Yeah. Back in the main part of the building, there's the, what at this point, it's the working office where Gordon and apparently Mr. Clark and others are yes. <laughs> trying to figure Stan. out, uh, <laughs> Stan. Yeah. What <laughs> it's going to be Mr. Clark all the way through as long as I see yeah, him I know. now. Thanks for that. I've ruined it. <laughs> but, you have not ruined it. You've made it better. Just letting you know. <laughs> he was just an extra. Now he's important to me. <laughs> and Stan has some really good ideas about what to call the room they're in. He mm -hmm. suggests the chamber of chipsets and <laughs> the logic lair. Now, what's interesting yeah. about this is these sound like Dungeons and Dragons. D&D, &D, yeah. Yeah. And so, and I, I believe firmly that his character in Stranger Things does indeed play D&D &D because he, if you recall, no in the first season, knew exactly what the Veil of Shadows was when Dustin yes. brings it up in season one. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So this role may have been a uh, an instigator or a, a precursor. A precursor. Yeah. 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 For what's to come. <laughs> he changed his name, Adam. I, and then he started working at the school because something happened that's in it. this show that we don't find out about. It, it's in the same time frame so this could it is in fact it is. be the same universe <laughs> it's from, we're gonna have a crossover texas. oh my god it's happening <laughs> the halt, he halt moves from stranger. texas to indiana yeah <laughs> or his oh twin brother he's, he's got a twin in hawkins indiana yeah. <laughs> well they decide on the kill room 
because right, they right. assume that they're probably going to kill each other. But interestingly enough, Gordon says that Skunk Works is taken, and that kind of piqued my interest. And so I looked it up, and apparently Skunk Works is a slang phrase commonly used to describe a small and loosely structured group of people who research and develop a project for the sake of innovation and technology. Those are obviously not my words as I'm reciting them. That makes a lot of sense. But I also found out that Skunk Works was, at the time, a reference to Lockheed Martin's Advanced Development Program, or ADP. So I think that Skunk Works was trademarked by Lockheed Martin in reference to that first definition. I think that's what Gordon's referring to. Yeah, yeah. I think it was post, yeah, it was like post-World War II, like during the Cold War, Lockheed Martin was involved with some really secretive projects working for the U.S. government and developing yeah. military and other types of technologies. Yeah, it was dubbed Skunk Works as a result. Everything was like top secret and the program was, was public knowledge. It's just that people that were affiliated with this were not allowed to talk about what they, what they were often working on. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Then we're outside Bosworth's office, where I think I saw another slight Dutch angle. There's a lot in this episode. Yeah. There's a lot in this episode, and there's a lot in the first three episodes. Yeah. And I will say, if at some point we need to rename the show, we will call it Halt and Dutch Angle instead there of Halt go. and Catch Fire, because <laughs> I think that there are a lot more to come. When we were talking about this, if you guys have listened to our Ted Lasso conversation, we talk a little bit about a Dutch angle used in one of the episodes. And I think as we were talking about it, I recalled that kind of approach in this show as a whole. Later in the series, this is not a spoiler, they start using an interesting camera angle, not necessarily a Dutch angle, but like a low angle mm, when they're okay. having conversations. So when we get there, I don't know if it happens in the first season or later, but when we get there, if you recognize it, would love your insight as to like what kind of camera technique that is. But yes, sure, definitely yeah. a lot of Dutch angles here, and in particular in this scene. This is where Joe introduces a VC to Bosworth, and he's all too happy to not have a meeting with this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clearly not uh, excited about this. And then we're back at Texas Instruments. For the first time, I think we see Donna in her work element. She yeah. is with her yeah. boss, I believe. Apparently, they went to high school together. They start talking about old times and how some things have changed and some things happen. I think there's another Dutch angle here. I'm not going to point out every Dutch angle. I just kind of throw <laughs> it in the notes. So if, if I do, I apologize. You're like, dude, stop talking about Dutch angles. No, no. it's No, they're, every choice for every angle with a camera is intentional. So noticing those things is important because you could easily have locked the camera down and leveled it off, but they chose not to. And I think that adds to whatever the director and cinematographer are trying to make you feel in those scenes. So it's, it's definitely relevant. But in this scene where she's talking to her boss, it does seem to me, again, I'm just watching this show for the first time, like there might be more than just going to high school together like maybe they used to date or something there's something i don't know why i just got this feeling that there was a little bit of perhaps romantic history i don't know I, it's just something that stood out to me i just made i made a note of it well your note is well taken because we'll find out in a little bit that there's opportunity that is presented by someone that we didn't expect to be on this episode and i was happy to see this actress on the episode, but we'll get there. <laughs> okay, okay. So back at Cardiff Electric, we're in the basement. Cam is still struggling. 
She calls Joe's office and then hangs up because that's what high school girls do when they call their boyfriends that they like. No, I'm kidding. That's not what happens. I, I mean, we find out later that she is kind of, she's needing help at this point, but her pride kind of takes over. Yeah, she just kind of hangs up. She doesn't want to want to deal with that. Yeah, she's definitely starting to realize she can't do this on her own, but she's not at the point yet where she's ready to ask for help, I feel like. Maybe if Joe had picked up. Yeah, and I would ask the question, you know, what would he do? Because he's not a coder, right. but maybe because they have this kind of interesting relationship right now, he could provide some kind of insight or maybe kind right. of push her forward. Inspiration some... or, or motivation, right. something, yeah. Back in Bosworth's office, Joe is selling, selling, selling. He is like, get this guy on board. The VC guy is asking really great questions. You know, what's your rollout strategy? When's your launch date? Things that I would probably ask if I'm going to invest millions into, or maybe hundreds of thousands, I don't know what the 80s dollar is worth at this point, but yeah. you know, a lot of money into this company. And of course, they don't have anything. I mean, they are basically like presenting magic words in this <laughs> right. conversation. I love how Bosworth reacts. He's like sarcastic in trying to quote, sell the product. Come on, Joe. We're tired of these doodad lunches and corporate suites. I want to breathe me some air. You know, mom and pop stores, county fairs. I mean, we may not have the track record of the balance sheet, but by God, we got heart. Can-do Texas spirit, y'all. It reminded me of the episode previous where he's selling Joe to his people about being the new kind of manager of the computing department. I mean, it's very much sarcastic and reluctant. Here, oh, yeah. he knows exactly what he's doing. He's basically torpedoing the meeting to get the VC to, to leave, and he, right, he succeeds. Right. <laughs> he, he like basically says at one point, like, oh, we're not worried about selling to businesses anymore. We just want to put a computer in everybody's home, you know, and, and clearly that's not what uh, people were really looking for at this point from Cardiff Electric. They were a company that was selling to businesses, and that's how they made their money. He knew what to say to turn this yeah. VC guy off. <laughs> and I think what makes Toby Huss's performance here so great is that accent where he mm -hmm. is the Southern guy, even the way he says this, oh, yeah, we want to put this in people's homes. We want to go door right. to door. We don't want to, you know, get the big boxes out. It, yeah. I just No more biz to biz. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think without that Southern accent, it just really wouldn't feel as sarcastic. Right. Like you can tell that he is <laughs> doing everything he can to get this VC and Joe out of his office. And Joe can tell, too. Joe is just his yeah. expression, you know, says it all in these scenes. You can just tell that he knows it's done. Like he's lost this yeah. guy right away. Like there's no salvaging this VC. I like yeah. he says something funny like uh, venture capital. Hell, I remember when it was still called money. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Instead of venture capital, you know, like this like big city term. That's one of them West Coast terms <laughs> that you don't want right. to deal with. <laughs> exactly. I was hoping the scene would end with him saying, you know what? I am kind of hungry. I think I will go eat some lunch. You know, because that yeah. was kind of the yeah. beginning of the conversation. Like, I already ate. Right. Yeah. They're like, oh, we, yeah. He's like, well, I already ate. And so did we, he says. Yeah. <laughs> so much like a chess match there. Yeah. Then we're back in the kill room where all these guys are trying to just sort of do some brainstorming. Brian, how dare you, sir? 
tries to get Gordon to let one of his people go. I have really no idea why, because if you've let 47 people go, surely you're as lean as you can be. Why do you need to let somebody else go? Yeah. And we get our first kind of instance of a little bit of conflict between Brian and Gordon. It's not much. I mean, it's very much like friend to friend. And in the moment I was like, well, maybe Brian knows something that I don't. At this point, I'm starting to feel like Brian almost wants this project to fail too. And as the episode progresses, I felt that way more and more. Like everything he would say would be counterproductive basically to actually achieving something. He just seems like that kind of guy. Now, I don't know if that's just his personality type or if he has like an actual ulterior motive to try to make sure it doesn't succeed. But I got that feeling starting around here. It was very subtle in this scene, yeah. for sure, where he would sort of cut into, like, that's not the greatest idea, and I don't know yeah. how we can do this. I don't think it's here. I think it's later on where they're in the kill room, and they're working on the computer, because I refer to Brian as a Debbie Downer in this moment, <laughs> where he's like, it's yeah. not going to work, it's not going to work. But again, I think if he does have an ulterior motive, if he wants the project to fail for whatever reason, he definitely hides it because he says... I'll be your wingman when you tell Joe it can't be done. And of course, Gordon says, no, I'll, I'll handle this. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think this is the start of, for whatever reason. And the fact is I've worked with people like this where mm. I'll present ideas and they'll be like, yeah, we tried that. It didn't work. And I'm like, well, right. you tried it five years ago or you tried it two years ago. Can we try it again? Or what about this? I don't like the response. Yeah, but I'd rather get the what if or yeah. how about those types of things. And when, when you have a f- person like Brian, he definitely deflates the room. Right. He's looking for a reason it won't work as opposed to trying to find a solution or to be creative or think outside of the box and think of, well, maybe we could do it if we did it this way. You know, he's so old school or, or maybe just so by the book that he won't if it doesn't fit into the way he knows how to do something, it's not possible. He's just not going to even entertain it. And that's clearly not what you need if you're trying to create something that's never been created before. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. So those two guys go to the break room where Cam comes up from the basement and she's still got the quarter on the string, dude. It's so cool. It's like, it's not just for video games, people. It's for getting a soda. And so does recorder that apparently at that point. Apparently they were. Yeah. Maybe yeah, uh, yeah. Because you couldn't I guess you couldn't she just drop puts the it in once, in the yeah, and, and it comes yeah. out. So But they have a little dialogue, Cameron and Gordon, and she's like, I can't be talking to you. It's like but 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 and and she goes, See ya and she just throws the middle fingers up while yeah. she's walking away. She steals his soda. What are you kidding me? Come I on. I mean, really? But it's such a hilarious scene because it just kind of personifies the difference between the two. You got hardware, software, yep. and they're they're not coexisting at this point. They're not even. They're literally not on the same level. You know, she yeah, has no, basement, no. he has kill room, and they're going to keep their lives separate as you know for for better or for worse at this point. And she got, as you said, she got two sodas for the price of none. She didn't pay exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, put your quarter back in and get a second one. Yeah, there you go. She's got this magic quarter. Buy your yeah. Buy your buddies a, a soda as well before you leave. Well, they're not really <laughs> they're her not, buddies. That's the problem. They're not her buddies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're old fuddy duddies that yeah. don't know anything about stuff yeah. beyond beige hardware. <laughs> right. The way that scene ends is great because he just he he stops and he goes. She took my soda. 
He doesn't go after her. You know, he just exactly. accepts defeat. Like, well, she won that round, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then Brian says, I'll order a pizza. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, good, Brian. Good, Brian. After being a jerk in the in the kill room, you're like, you better buy pizza. Yeah. <laughs> well, back at Gordon's house, Annette O'Toole comes in as Donna's mom. I'm like, yes. How about it, Martha Kent? Way to show up and show out. I was excited. I'd forgotten that she's in the show and yeah, it made me so yeah. happy to see her on screen. She also played Lana Lang in Superman three. So she has two yes. Superman roles. Yeah. Know. That, <laughs> yeah. that one before the other one, which came out in 1983, the year that this show takes place. So that's interesting. So oh, if gosh. any of the characters go see Superman three, they're going to see Donna's mom, but young. So, okay. I'm confused yeah. now. <laughs> It's Back yeah. to the Future. That came out two <laughs> years later. Okay, now we're just getting into like a space-time yeah. continuum where I'm going to disappear in about five seconds. It's going to be your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, like most stereotypical in-law parents, there's some yeah. tension with them and Gordon. I don't know what she's pulling out of this box. Maybe it's stuff from their house, like junk from there. But apparently yeah, there's like this tombstone <laughs> that they want to use for the bird. At this point, I'm like, okay, I guess the bird died because she's got this tombstone with like Artie or some kind of name on it. The dialogue here is very informative. Yeah. Because she starts asking about life at Texas Instruments. Then we get the guy's name, Hunt, her boss. And apparently this is what you were talking about earlier where she regrets Donna not being with Hunt. So apparently there was some kind of relationship and you have this successful guy who goes on to be part of TI. He's got an opportunity to maybe move somewhere else. I think he's married. He's definitely married. They mentioned, I forget, but they do mention her name, but I don't think Donna likes this guy at all, but clearly the mother seems to think he was a better, maybe just financial fit for Mm-hmm. Her daughter, then... Uh, oh, yeah. And based off of what she's saying, apparently Donna's parents are pretty successful. I think they have their own business. Yeah, a catalog business. Yeah. A ca- yeah, a catalog business. So apparently they've done well for themselves. So she comes from money. So right. it makes sense that her mom would want her to marry a guy who is financially well off. Gordon clearly is not quite so financially successful as, you know... He's more of a visionary, more of a builder. Right. And <laughs> she did not marry him for his money. No. That's for no. sure. <laughs> so it's true love. That's how you know. <laughs> <laughs> he gave her that great house with the button stove. And right. that was enough right. for her to say, I'm he, yours. He Gordon. may have married her for her money. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> probably right. did. I have no idea yeah. at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short scene, but it gives us a lot of backstory. You know, information about mm-hmm. about them and their relationship. And then we're at lunch with Nathan Cardiff, I think at like some club of some kind. And uh, John's there with uh, with Joe. The three of them are sitting down and John makes the financial decisions, apparently, according to Nathan. He's basically saying, OK, I'm going to agree to do this One, I have no choice. Right. But two, I think it could be something great, but we're going to change the terms here. So he puts... John in charge of all the financial stuff. He basically says, Joe, don't go rogue. You're not allowed to do that anymore. He says, Joe is the visionary, yeah. according to, to Nathan. So I don't know if that affirmed Joe or if that frustrated him that he can't have complete control. 
but I told myself this is probably not happening. <laughs> you're putting <laughs> you're putting Bosworth in charge. It's not going to happen very long if Joe has anything to say about it. Right, right. Yeah. I did like his line where he says like the way that works is that John here sends me my checks, keeps me fat and happy. Like that's <laughs> all that matters to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, as long as like, there's some profit behind it. Yeah, this. I'm retired and I don't I don't I want to stay that way, he says. And uh yeah. yeah. It's funny how these people are retired, but yet these characters can't really retire. Like they're still so connected to their company that yeah, they may not be doing the day to day work, but they're clearly still an influential figure in running the company it fascinates me like if i retired i would really just want to be like i'm out of here i'm done like just leave me alone (laughs) i don't care what you yeah (laughs) yeah and i think some of that for cardiff is that nathan has a financial stake in this so if cardiff goes down he's losing his fat and happy checks (laughs) but he's admitted that he doesn't want to be a part of the day-to-day stuff like he just wants to reap the benefits at any given point, I mean, I think he's a major shareholder. I think he's the majority shareholder of the company. And at any given point, while he sees Cardiff Electric as being a pretty successful company, at least you know in stability, I think if he needed to, he could sell the company at some point, make bukus, but then he's lost his income. Right. Although he's probably rich enough that he could probably just step away and have enough. I mean, how many years is he going to live anyway? You know, it's like he could probably live very comfortably for the remaining years of his life with whatever money he currently has. But as we know, rich people want to get richer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and based off of what he ordered at that restaurant, I don't think he's going to live very long. No, that's, yeah. What does he order? He orders uh, a steak and he goes, burn it. <laughs> <laughs> and then mashed peas. I think he says either mashed peas or mashed taters Pe- or something like that. Peas and mash, I think he says. Yeah. Peas, peas and mash. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I, I Boz, think orders it, and Boz orders his steak rare, like very rare. I think he like adds yeah. extra rare in there. And then Joe says, of the same. You know, yeah. Like he's going to be. Joe's that, clearly trying to be one of the guys here, you know, to fit in still. Like he still feels like the outsider. He's trying to like show that he can be on their level. And uh, I think that's why he does that as opposed to just ordering what he might actually want you know i don't know if he really wants a rare rare steak (laughs) but i don't think think he's doing it intentionally yeah (laughs) a steak tartare right he's gonna end up getting exactly (laughs) that's uncooked but yeah (laughs) yeah can you just bring the cow mooing and i'll just pet it until i'm ready to eat (laughs) (laughs) i have to say i'm a little more like nathan i like like a medium well i like a steak that's got a crispy outer edge and uh it's just my preference so i don't like it burnt yeah i I don't want it burnt but i'm a medium guy when it comes to my steak but Uh if i'm doing like hamburger steak or what they would call roadkill at like a texas roadhouse right i want it like medium well so yeah that's that's just i just i'm not a big i'm I'm not a fan of like like too much pink in there i i like i like it to just be like a not dark but like a nice even color throughout you know whatever yeah whatever color that is (laughs) Brown, yeah, you, brownish, grayish. I don't know. Gray? gray? What are you? It depends on the lighting, you know. <laughs> if it's dark, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's not that's not beef you're eating, sir. Yeah, that's the a great scene from uh, Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone when he uh, oh, orders a burger there. and he's like, "What is this?" And they're like, "You don't see a lot of." Uh, 
of the cows around here, do you? And he's like, what? It's like, it's a rat burger. <laughs> and he's like, and then he takes a look at it. He's like, well, it tastes delicious. So I'm just going to keep eating it. So. <laughs> just yeah. accept it, right? Accept yeah. it. <laughs> One thing that comes from this scene that's really interesting is that Nathan's really slapping down Joe saying that they're going to go with a local money bag person as opposed to a VC person. Right. Uh, much to his chagrin. This is a key part of the episode, really, because they cannot proceed without money. They've burnt through pretty much all the cash they have. They've had to lay off, as you said, so many of key people. So if they don't get an infusion ASAP, they are done. And they all know this. So they're more they're actually desperate for cash. Later on at Gordon's house, um, Donna's working on something for TI, some kind of oscilloscope type thing. She's testing circuits, I guess. I don't really get the explanation there. I just kind of make the assumption that she's doing something that's smarter than what I could do. So we're <laughs> right, assuming yeah. that she's definitely tech savvy. Yeah. Part of me thinks she could be like a little smarter than uh, her husband. But anyway, I, I, she is yeah. She's smarter than Gordon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he's Gordon's going to get all the credit. Yeah. <laughs> She's the guy behind the guy. Exactly. <laughs> behind every great man is, well, Donna. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's, what it's, that's the slogan. That's what it should exactly. be. Behind every great man is Donna. While he's working on his sort of um, sketch for how these chips could kind of fit on this board, I think that's a great little design. And I'd never really thought about that, about putting a motherboard together and really sketching it out. Like, how would you do this? This is a great line. Um, and I kind of alluded to it earlier. She says, you know what you could do? And then she starts coming up with this brilliant idea about changing the, the orientation of some of these chips and then piggybacking the circuits off of each other or essentially folding the board in half. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're brilliant. And she's basically like, yeah, I am. No, none of that happened. But that's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, this is, this is well, probably yeah. what attracted you to her. It's besides those, the fact that she's very yeah. beautiful. Aha moments, yeah. Yeah. So I guess, uh, so what I'm gathering is that instead of it taking more space up horizontally, it's just going to be thicker, but taking less space up, like it's double the thickness, but yeah. not as much space like left to right. By That's my assumption too. Yeah. yeah. Is that they're basically doing exactly what she did was like, you put the chipset in there, you fold it in half and you connect them. And that frees up more space left to right, you know, so you can put other stuff in there. Yeah. Like yeah. Doritos or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You got room. Let's just throw it in there. What if you want? <laughs> yeah. I can put some change in there for later. Yeah. <laughs> this is where I keep my special Pez dispensers right here and right between the, you know, this chip and that chip, a potato chip. Anyway. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> We're back at Cardiff Electric. It's, I think, that same night. This is at night when, when yeah. this happens. Um, Cam is kind of cruising through. Yeah, roaming the halls. Yeah. Yeah. Carter. Yeah. She sees a light on in Bosworth's office and Bosworth is actually there. She yeah. kind of gets called out for wearing these bowling shoes. <laughs> Bosworth describes this fired employee as basically being dead and he said, yeah. "You think it's a good idea walking around in dead man's shoes?" And he doesn't do it in a way that's like condescending to her, but it's somewhat like it's like in poor taste. Yeah, yeah. But I like her response because she instantly has a pretty good retort where she says, I heard money's tight around here. I thought I'd switch off your light. Uh-huh. You know, as, as <laughs> in terms of why she was in his office, why she was wandering into his office. So, of course, he 
doesn't buy it and gets it. Right. But and it's this is an interesting scene because he's apparently trying to understand and learn coding language and it takes his character in a direction I wasn't expecting because it shows that he's trying to better himself. He's trying to understand this this new direction that the company is going in because if he doesn't what's his purpose there? He needs to be somewhat knowledgeable to be able to speak with all the people developing this this new computer project. So it just it, it was interesting to me and I and I like the exchange that they have as well. Yeah, I think this starts the beginning of maybe a common enemy with Joe. And yeah. I agree. I think it's really cool to see how he is trying to get into the world that he's going to be living in for a while. And it's sweet because he is asking, what's the difference between go to and whatever it was? And then she yeah. doesn't dismiss him. She doesn't say, are you stupid? She even says later on, it's hard at first. Yeah. And I think that they're kind of finding a connection. It's not just a common enemy, but I think they both kind of mutually respect each other's positions and what their role is going to be in this adventure together. Right, because right. a part of me feels like they're kind of at the hands of Joe McMillan. Like he is sort of a common enemy, but he's also someone that they have to work with. And mm -hmm. this could be great, but we just have to kind of get through some of this stuff. The scene ends with him making this great line. He says, You can work here as late as you'd like cannot live here that's when we um move a little bit of the pace forward we're back at cardiff electric the next day this is where we would expect gordon's idea to be like yes everybody's like we could do this and who steps in to just put a wet blanket on that electrical circuit board drawing <laughs> good old brian he does bring up a good point he said who's going to produce a new board from scratch there's just not enough time but in fairness, he's also, I think, kind of missing the point. And that is that if, if you're going to create like a new product category, you're going to have companies clamoring to make your new motherboards, you know, to be the manufacturers for you. They're going to make all new manufacturing facilities just for you because they want to be your exclusive supplier. So he's not thinking far enough ahead. He's thinking backwards and not forwards, I feel like. And that's where he just is a useless member of this team. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree. And I think that at the very least, you take the idea and you back it up a little bit. Even if it's not the idea, part of the reason that you have whiteboard sessions is that you throw as many ideas on the board as possible. So you have the present state, which is Cardiff Electric as it stands. You have the ideal state, which I think at this point is that motherboard that you can fold yeah. in half. The next logical step is if we can't get there, what's the future state? So what's the in-between? How do we at right. least iterate forward? What can we compromise? What can we sacrifice? Do we need two disk drives? Can we use USB? Wait, USB doesn't exist yet. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just yeah. <laughs> ideas come from being able to go forward and then work your way backwards a little right. bit. If you overshoot, you're going to end up farther along than you would have been normally anyway. You know, so exactly. like you have to shoot farther than you think you can go. But right. what he's doing is he's bringing, it's like he's bringing him all the way back. As he even says, let's go back to Alpha. It's almost like he's trying to bring him back to where they were before, where, where they weren't making this new computer. It's like he doesn't see it as even being viable, which if Brian can't see this is actually happening, it never will. That's the problem. Like you have to believe right. it's possible. And he clearly doesn't. And I think this 
just tells us that Brian's just collecting a paycheck and he yeah. doesn't like the idea of shaking things up. He likes mm-hmm. stability. He likes the predictability of soccer season and amazing donuts <laughs> that are homemade. I mean, he likes that kind of stuff. Right, right. And right. Yeah. I understand that, but that's not the world that we're living in at this point in the show. I mean, we are right. living in a very uncomfortable, what is the future going to look like? And clearly he's not on board with that. No. So back in the basement, Cameron throws away the bowling shoes. I think she's like, yep, Boz is right. And then she gets a paycheck, and I'm happy because now she can get out of the basement and stop using the company bathroom for her own personal hygienic effect. And I love the smile on her face. It's Uh, it's, so priceless. This scene really made me smile. I remember as a teenager when I got my first paycheck working a summer job, there was something so rewarding about that feeling. And it kind of feels like that's what she feels. And again, at this point in time for her, she obviously had some smaller jobs, but I, I freezed the frame and saw that, first of all, it, it was dated June 10th, 1983. So it's actually earlier, unless they made a mistake. And it's not supposed to be June 10th, and it's supposed to be like the fall. That's when the check was dated. So that's interesting. And it was for $382.67. So again, for her, that must feel like a fortune if she was making a couple bucks an hour repairing VCRs or whatever she was doing previously. I also noticed that it was addressed to a P.O. box. So this does indeed confirm that she doesn't have a home, at least not one that accepts mail. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So she gets the paycheck, she cashes it. And then when she's on the streets with all of her trinkets and stuff that she has purchased, she meets some miscreants who are looking to party. And this whole scene is just hilarious to watch. Are these the same ones from from uh, Stranger Things season two? You know, that L <laughs> I runs thought, into I in thought that same thing. <laughs> I, yeah, this is not Chicago, right? This is no, still, this <laughs> is still like Dallas or, or whatever. She drove to Chicago <laughs> to cash her check, though. I think. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where this whole show is filmed in Chicago, right? Even if it right. takes place in Texas. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, they're just typical and, '80s alley cats just hanging out in the alleyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And she's got, I mean, she's got no, no beef with them. She no. basically says, hey, you guys want a party? I've got just the place. And I'm like, where is she taking them? I know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I kid you not, I thought she was taking them back to the office. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, that would be in character. I mean, because she'd be like, come on, the basement's awesome down here. You know, <laughs> they just have like a big party down there. And they solve the coding problem. <laughs> right, together. Yeah. And she gives them each like $10 to go buy alcohol <laughs> as just, a reward. I just could never just like see some people hanging out in an alleyway and be like, oh man, yeah, what are you doing? Oh yeah, let's go. Let's have some fun. Like what? <laughs> and and she just, she has like $300 in cash in her hand. Like you're not worried that these people are going to just take your money and run. Like you're clearly not something I would feel comfortable doing, but. Yeah. I'm, but you know, we're not Cameron. No, so not at all. It's. Maybe worse or better than her, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> the episode then takes us to Lulu's house. Joe clearly does not want to be there. <laughs> no. And his his body language just it says, Get oh, me out of here. This is not this is not okay. He's so uncomfortable. <laughs> Lulu says, uh, and she's played by I forget who she's played oh, by. Oh, Gene but, Smart, yeah, from uh, Designing yeah. Women. From Designing the Women, sitcom. yeah. Yeah. From the eighties. <laughs> Yeah, and she's yeah. been in a lot of – I mean, she's been in many things. I saw her 
she was in the HBO Watchmen series that came out. I think last was it last okay, year, yeah, year before. She was really good in that. Yeah, she's got a long career, but yeah, I think she's probably most recognizable from that '80s show, Designing Women. Yeah, that's where I remember her from. Yeah, and then when I when I watch other things, I'm like, oh, that's that's that, who who is that? And they're yeah. like, yeah, Designing yeah. Women. Designing like women. you know her, you know her face, you know her her voice, but yeah, it's, she's not necessarily a, a household name, but she's a, mm-hmm. a good, a good character actor without a doubt. And yeah. she does, she's really good in this. Like oh, so gosh. much of her acting here is in her was what is when she's not speaking like her expressions. And mm-hmm. she's like playing like a game with Joe almost. It's really incredible. And just everything yeah. that's said and not said, she does say, John, I believe you brought a shark to my table. And <laughs> yeah. she's not from Savannah, Georgia. Apparently, that's that's not her accent. <laughs> no, but it's it's a good accent, though. Uh, she's She's got a great one. She's she's like Bosworth. I mean, when she yeah. delivers those lines. And I love her name, Lulu. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this is this is a great a great character name for her. She looks like a Lulu in this. Yeah. Oh, God. And she, yeah, the offer that she makes is horrible. 80% equity for 10 million dollars 80 was it 80 percent? 80 percent yeah oh okay yeah i i, I wow. put on the subtitles just to make sure i heard it right she basically wants complete ownership i mean they're leaving 20 percent to whoever works there i mean it's ridiculous yeah so yeah yeah no joe is yeah. not gonna ever deal accept something as as high as that and they didn't even try to negotiate either they just kind of Boz is just ready to take the offer. Like, cause I think right. he was under orders, just mm-hmm. get some cash infused in the company right away. Cause we're desperate, whatever it takes. And yeah, he was uh, yeah. not doing his job of, I mean, at least negotiate it down 60%, something, you know? Yeah. Make or it no less than 50. Yeah. Again, yeah. Don't you know, just, get, if you're going to give away the I company, I would have done 49%. That way his boss still owns mm-hmm. the controlling interest in the company. Absolutely. And maybe, I mean, the fact is, maybe Bosworth wanted this to fail. Maybe that's what Cardiff, maybe Cardiff knew that, that she yeah. was going to be have a terrible offer. But the fact is, he accepted her offer. He so, did. Yeah. I, so, I mean, again, maybe failure was going to be done via the agreement or by walking away. So it was lose-lose for Joe because he right. wasn't going to get the deal he wanted. So I don't know. Maybe that's kind of what the plan was, to <laughs> torpedo the deal any way possible. I think Boz legit was trying just to get whatever money because he wants to keep his job. And he's like, I've been here 22 That's years. True. And I, I, you know, I, if they only have two months worth of funds to pay even the remaining people, he's out of a job too. And that means any stock options he has, whatever, are, are probably worthless. So he, I think he just wanted that $10 because that keeps them going. And then there's hope for another day. This is a very important scene with Lulu, but we do cut back temporarily to uh, Donna and we get a little more information about what's going on with her. Mm-hmm. Like she's did, supposed to get these documents over to yeah. Hunt and she's apparently late and she's trying to sneak him into the door. He opens the, the door and grabs them. I don't think he's mad at her, but he no. might be disappointed. It's just awkward. It's just a strange, and it's very quick. And then we cut back to the hotel. We haven't mentioned this yet, but Cam takes these miscreants to some yeah. <laughs> motel or hotel and they're just drinking and smoking and partying and listening to loud music and dancing. And I don't know what else they're doing, but 
they're not doing good homemade stuff. tattoos man yeah homemade, oh, tattoos. homemade tattoos yeah yeah watching tv <laughs> yeah and clearly with like a maid in the room did you notice that there was like one of the maids was just like <laughs> yes. in the room while they were uh, yeah she was coming in to clean apparently because there them, was a disturbance still, and yeah they're like get out we're drinking here you can go home <laughs> yeah. now <laughs> I love how the scene shows Cameron's reaction to she thinks that this is going to help solve her problems or at least kind of let her escape. And yeah, it's like she's not fitting in, not which is all. interesting yeah. because you feel like this is precisely the crowd that she would fit in with of just hanging out and doing whatever. They've got what seems like an unlimited amount of money, right. but it's not working for her. It's like she's starting to maybe, just maybe, mature beyond... Mm-hmm. This sort of superficial pleasure, uh, you know, just partying and drinking, you know. She even at one point early in the scene, someone kind of pushes a bottle of vodka towards her and she kind of waves it away. Like she's not, she doesn't even want it. And I think that just shows that she might be starting to realize that maybe this isn't the world I want to be in anymore. Yeah, I picked up on that too. Yeah. I did. Yeah. And then we're back at Lulu's house where. Joe's discontent at the dinner table is fantastic. His body language. Uh, yeah. I love what he says at the dinner table. We're not going to be partners. Why's that? Because you're a bored, poisonous dilettante with time on our hands and no taste. Two things destroy companies, Miss Lutherford. Mediocrity and making it about yourself. I think you make everything about yourself. That's why you rent your friends and repel everyone else. Boom. Yes, Joe. So good. (laughs) And her just, again, her silent reaction, the way her her face kind of reacts and quivers, it's just clearly nobody talks to her this way ever. Of course, Joe doesn't care. (laughs) You know, it's the Southern politeness. Joe's not going to play that game. He's like, this is who you are. And you know it. <laughs> right. And then he gets thrown under the bus. Bosworth then accepts the offer. Yep. And it's like deflating a giant helium balloon. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Back at the hotel, Cam gets this idea when she's apparently getting this homemade tattoo. You know, from a production standpoint, I like how this was shown. I mean, this it looked like she was really getting this ugh, just kind of... Um, bad tattoo this probably unsanitary paperclip thing that right. was <laughs> it was so nasty but it, it looked like it was really happening so credit to the the makeup team yep. for making it look like that but she gets this idea from the tattoo and she realizes that she needs to be somewhere else like she can't think she's trying to put using lipstick she's trying to like write out code right and she's frustrated and on on the mirror in the bathroom of yeah. the hotel yeah and i, I love i, I kind of love that it's sort of a little bit of a, a movie or tv cliche oh i've got this brilliant idea i gotta like just write it on the mirror but but yeah a lot of a lot of great cinematic ideas have started from the bathroom such as the flux capacitor i had to do a little that's right a little back to the future reference there inspired by the toilet <laughs> exactly <laughs> i slept and hit my head what? on the porcelain <laughs> maybe that's what she needed is that yeah her head hit the porcelain and she wouldn't dream of like this is what the new bios yeah, should exactly like. <laughs> but she hasn't seen back to the future yet because it doesn't come out that's for another right, year she hasn't so. 
Once she's she sees so deprived, it, she can she can <laughs> follow in Doc Brown's footsteps and exactly. Until then, she'll just watch Superman three. <laughs> That's right. That's around and Return <laughs> of the Jedi. Hey, I rec- exactly. I recognize you, <laughs> Donna's mom. You look so much younger. Yeah, dating Clark Kent. So then we're back at Lulu's house, and as I've said before, this first season has some just really weird scenes. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. I think. This is a characteristic of finding your footing in the first season. Apparently, Lulu's like lawn boy or pool boy or whatever this guy is. I don't yeah. know that Travis, she ever I think, is his name. Travis yeah. is his name. Yeah. That's all he is. He goes to get a bottle of wine to celebrate. And then Joe comes on to him. And I guess they have sex or something. Uh, it's just... It's, yeah, I... It's just I, I just kept saying, what is going on here? And I was at first I was like, do they know each other? Is there some connection? That was like, no. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. Joe is using, I think, using sex as a way to manipulate the situation. And then I was like, is he gay or is he just one of those people that he'll do whatever it takes to win? Like yeah. he'll sacrifice <laughs> And do this deed if it means he can win this game of chess with Lulu. Like, that's kind of where yeah. I think he's coming from. Like, that's just yeah, he's I, such a, a manipulator. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's the latter because yeah. of the fact that Bosworth torpedoed his deal. He knows that, as you mentioned, that Southern hospitality, that perception. Yeah, I think Lulu knows that Travis is gay. But it's not a public outage, right? And because what Joe did validates his sexuality when they come back, and it speaks to that body language you mentioned. She doesn't say a thing, exactly. We know that she kills the deal, yeah, because of the fact that he has now exposed Travis. It seems like at this point, Travis is going to be so open about it. What sucks about this is that outside the car in, in the parking lot or in the driveway. Yeah. It's like the driveway of Lou's mansion. Yeah. We see them. We find out that the deal has been killed. And then Joe looks up at Travis and Travis has realized that he was just used. So right. it's just, it's sad on multiple levels. It's awkward and kind of gross and just, it, yeah, just really like dipping to a different level. And at the same time, whether or not you agree with a lifestyle like that, I mean, he's a victim. Travis is a victim at this point because he's basically right. become a pawn. And exactly, yeah. I'm assuming we never see him again. I don't think there's any relationship. Yeah. I mean, like I said, at first I was like, do they, I thought because he was looking at him funny at the, at the table. And now I'm realizing, oh, he probably, Joe just clearly has some incredible gaydar. You know, he just could tell <laughs> maybe it's because he's, you know, from New York or something. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> no, I mean, he maybe he's around, you know, he's, he just can sense, right? He just has a, a sense based on the circles of friends or people he's worked with in New York. I don't know, but he clearly knew what he could do. He was forming his plan, I think, at dinner and realizing he had an opportunity here to take back the control from Lulu. He, he's almost like, Joe is almost like, a psychopath in that he doesn't see what's he doesn't understand right from wrong or he doesn't empathize with people. You know what I mean? There's like a, a component mm-hmm. to his character, which is very common in successful business people. Yeah. It's, it's part of what makes them succeed. Yeah. And this is, it speaks back to what Bos, Bosworth was saying whenever 
they were going through the big raid where Joe says, yep. I want to help. And Bosworth said, this is about relationships. You wouldn't know anything about that. Right. Clearly, this is a reemphasis of that. And the, the scene ends outside the driveway. It's so hilariously like bad and, and funny because Bosworth is essentially, he goes, What'd you say to her? Hey. Hey. What'd you do? We'll talk tomorrow. Like we know what Joe Boss did. is just like totally in the dark, you know. Like yeah. the only people clearly that know what happened are Joe and Travis and Lulu. No one else in the room, I, I would imagine, understands. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's it was. I was not prepared for that turn of events. I'll just say that that um, that's a that's that's a perfect way to say it because I wasn't either. And but, at this point, yeah three weeks into the series, I'm like, do I really want to continue this? Is this what we're getting into? <laughs> I think it shows what lengths Joe will go to, to win at this game of business, you know, that it's sort of showing us as the audience, how extreme he can be in his manipulations and sort of what he's willing to do to other people. And even to himself, right. He's just clearly not afraid to do what he has to do or what he thinks he has to do. He has to be the smartest one in the room in a way, you know, he can't have somebody controlling him, manipulating him. So we're at the end of the workday. We're in Brian's car. Gordon's car is still in the shop. As we find out from earlier in the episode during the awkward bird scene, Gordon is just kind of looking out the window. He's disappointed because they've gone back to alpha and then Brian's car gets T-boned out of nowhere and that surprised me (laughs) because i wasn't expecting that the scene slows down gordon's bleeding from the head and then out of nowhere he fires brian and i stand up from my couch and i give him the slow hand clap because i'm like good for you (laughs) that's who you need to fire. finally right like let go and let god just just (laughs) let him go (laughs) yeah and then he walks away yeah yeah he walks away bleeding from the head from the accident and they're neighbors too, aren't they? They're next door neighbors, so it's not like they yeah. can actually like avoid one another <laughs> going forward. So he fires them, and yeah. they had an accident together. And he clearly is not going to be able to uh, just forget about this guy. He's going to run into him every morning. <laughs> uh, Soccer is going to be awkward this fall. <laughs> yeah, that's right. One other thing though that um, Joe says back at that car scene in the driveway that I think it's important is he says, we don't need her because he describes it how they need to build a prototype on their own dime in half the time and then show that prototype essentially to other investors and that way they'll have the leverage. And this is really smart in the situation they're in. If they can make an amazing prototype that actually works, that's all they need to get investors fighting over them. It's just like the show Shark Tank, you know? If you have a proof of concept that's amazing, then all five of those sharks are gonna be throwing money at you and trying to be the one to be your partner. So they really were going about this whole thing the wrong way. They're trying to get money up front. No, you need to make a working product. You have Mm -hmm. enough money and enough time to do that. If you can succeed, then everyone's gonna be knocking on their door. And that's what he essentially tells Boz. I don't know if Boz believes it here because he's still old school. You know, he thinks, yeah, you just need to get some money. But again, I think Joe's plan is constantly changing. But with the same end game, how he gets there is constantly shifting. 
Yeah. So we knew he had a plan and that plan worked until it didn't. And now right. he's sort of maverick at this point, just kind of winging it, uh, gunslinger, whatever right. analogy we want to use yeah. or metaphor yeah. we want to use. And uh, you're right. I mean, that was the bad way to go about trying to get money. And for those reasons, I'm out, as they would say on Shark Tank. Yeah. I mean, even even trying to get the money from the venture capitalists wasn't the smartest move at that stage, because this really, what he's saying now, is the right move. If they Because they have a, a unique idea. They have something that isn't being done, at least that they're aware of, that will be a whole new product category. And so all they have to do is make that prototype and make it actually work and not overheat and all of that. That's the only sort of obstacle they have to to really overcome. Not getting money. Not right now. Um, after this scene, there's two quick scenes. One's at Joe's apartment. Um, yeah. Cam busts in, <laughs> and she admits that she's stuck. Yep. And she needs Joe's help. What that is, we don't know. But clearly, she's extending the olive branch, and hopefully the help that she needs is not that she needs to stay at his apartment, because I hope that she can afford a place on her own at this right. point. Yeah, I just love how Joe's just like, what are you doing here? You know, like, yeah, he, he's going to make her admit that she needs help, <laughs> that she's stuck and say it, say it, <laughs> say it. <laughs> and then we cut to Bosworth's office. He's reading code, as you alluded to yeah. earlier. And then he is sleeping there. Hypocrite. You're supposed to go home. You cannot live in your office. <laughs> but like, I know he has a home. Like, so to me, this is just maybe show again, trying to show or make us as the viewer sympathize a little bit with Bosworth that he's really trying to save the company. Like he I is agree, willing yeah. to work, you know, to burn the midnight oil, as they say. And just if he has to just crash on his couch so he can get back to work, you know, at 7 a.m. the next morning, he'll do it. He'll keep reading, keep learning. So yeah. I'm starting to feel, even though he's been kind of the enemy thus far, I, I, I'm starting to have a little more understanding of where he's coming from as, as a human being. And just, right. again, his whole world has been, been turned upside down over essentially overnight because of one person. And I think we're becoming more sympathetic to him. He's, I think, right. as you say, he's softening up. And right. it's, it's nice because <laughs> the show is starting to allow us to appreciate different sides of these characters based off of the revelations that we're getting that these characters are not flat as we'll, as we're finding out. And as we expected, they're, they're round characters, but how they get there, just like the revelation that Joe will do anything to get what he wants or get what he needs. I think the same way in a different kind of aha moment, we're getting that Bosworth is really trying to understand the world that he does not know at all. Right. And that maybe you can teach an old dog, new tricks even if he doesn't get pork chops at home because he's sleeping in his office. I mean, that's, right. yeah, here we are. I mean, I think he's desperate here in, in a way, because he, like we said earlier, he, he could very well be out of a job in two months if, if, he, if they don't succeed. And then the episode finishes at Gordon's house, and we find out that the bird is not dead, much yeah. to my It's still happiness. suffering, yeah. It's still suffering. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. Are they going to save the bird? Is this a yeah. metaphor? What's happening? <laughs> But he sends Donna. He said, "I've kind of had a day. I've had a day. I need you to just basically handle this." So it's almost like she's the hitman, like handle yeah. it for me. Take I'm care, take of, care it. of this bird. Yeah, take, take care of it for my family. You know. So he's like the programming godfather of some kind. And then she goes out there and she kills the bird. And her face is interesting because she kind of looks annoyed. Like, really, 
you're making me do this. Yeah, and she looks back in the window at him, looking out at her. So he's watching her do it. And it's kind of yeah. like, you're going to make me do this? <laughs> yeah. It's like, what kind of relationship is this at this point? <laughs> well, this is where, just prior to her murdering this poor bird, uh, we get the title of the episode. Because she goes into the garage to get a shovel. And on the handle of the shovel reads high plains hardware so clearly that's the name of the hardware store where this shovel was purchased obviously it's a bit of a play on you know that's actual hardware as in things that you use (laughs) (laughs) versus hardware for a computer so it now it makes sense Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A little it was, thing. It's, I did it was not such notice. a quick thing. Like if you didn't, if like you blinked at the wrong moment or kind of looked down at your bowl of popcorn, like you wouldn't see it. But it's just like written there on the side of the, the shovel arm, High Plains Hardware. Someone had a hardware store where they thought, oh, I like that movie, High Plains Drifter, and I'm going to name my hardware <laughs> store after it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I did blink and I did look down at my popcorn. Both of those things happened. See? That's probably why I missed it. So. I know you are calling that one, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the way she kills it too. She just kind of like, I mean, it cuts stabs you it. See it. She's like, like stab, like like she's gonna like decapitate it with the tip of the shovel. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I kind of uh, I jolted like when you hear the sound effect. I'm like, oh, oh, I could just feel it and almost see it, even though they don't show oh, it. Like so you sad. knew what was happening, and yeah, I definitely don't want to see it. We'll just assume that she missed it. She missed the bird, and then it flew away and, yeah and this it. made me Correct. wonder like you you hinted to like is this you know an, an analogy you know for the project like the dying bird is that the project and can they save the bird can they save this project so now i'm wondering if that's true if that's the analogy then is donna going to be the one to kill the project somehow at some point down the road <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not brian because he's been fired <laughs> i hope not but I hope Donna Donna doesn't become the enemy of the project, but we'll we'll find out at some point. Yeah. (laughs) And that brings us to the end of our episode. Adam, what is coming up next? Yeah. So episode four of season one is entitled close to the metal. And that's all, all all I know you may recall, but I'm like you. I think we've mentioned this before that I know the basic story beats of the, of the seasons. I know, how it gets from start to finish. But you said this, I think in our, I don't know if we said this offline or not, but we did talk about the fact that with like stranger things, because you've been through it, you know how it gets from, you know, the start and finish, but the journey to get there is blurry. And that's it for me. Like, I don't know what this episode's about. I know what happens at the end of the season, but I'm right. excited, as I always am, uh, talking to you about how to get. Yeah, how, how, how are we going to get? How there? they got? Yeah, exactly. The journey. Yeah, the journey is going to be. It's it's been fun, and it's, it'll continue to be fun. I think. Yeah, that was a good one. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in as always and joining this conversation. I'm Patch. He's Adam, and we are out of here.